Hello, and welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Have you been crucified with Christ? You know, that's terminology that we hear often, but do you and I really have a full understanding of what that means? Well, this is what Pastor John is going to show us in Luke 23, verses 26 through 49, in a sermon entitled Crucified, because it deals, of course, with the crucifixion of our Lord. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to our channel uh, so you won't miss a thing. And God bless you. I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 23, verses 26 through 49. For you folks that are here and you folks that are listening, and how are we doing with the fast? You know, Pastor Scott challenged us last week uh, to fast the news. I know that's hard. Uh, for me, it's not that hard. I, I mean, I, I, I like the news, but I, 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 don't, I don't spend a lot of time looking at it. Uh, the, uh, most of the news I get is in the grocery line. <laughs> Brad and Jen still aren't back together. That's news to me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm feeling pretty comfortable with the fast. And as I was pondering that, as I'm going through my week, my wife's down in Florida. Hi, Kelly. I started watching a TV show. I like TV shows. Anybody like TV shows? We got three honest people. Okay, everybody got it. <laughs> so I'm watching TV shows. It's a cowboy show. And I want to buy cowboy boots. If you watched the video, you heard this. Okay, I want to buy cowboy boots. I want to put on a hat. I want to go out to Montana and ride a horse. And I'm in the middle of binging this cowboy show. And there's this echo in the back of my mind. You've probably experienced this. So you're not fasting the news, eh? And I go, no, I've, but, but I like this cowboy show. And I had to turn it off. Because, you know, the, the fast is time that we spend doing something we would like to do that we give to the Lord. Uh, so so I'm, I'm on my own fast because... I want in my life God to be the high priority. I, I want in my life to pour things into me uh, that bring me closer to the Lord, to set my, thing, my, my mind on things above, to concentrate on whatever is pure, whatever is holy, all of those things. I want to be able to do that so that what flows from me is Jesus Christ and the truth of God's Word and not the desire to be a cowboy. I'm not a cowboy. I've never really wanted a horse, but I'm watching this show and all of a sudden I want it. You know, so the things that we pour into ourselves come flowing out of us. And we have to be careful what we pour in because they transform us. They change us. We have to be willing to be changed, transformed into the character and nature of God. So I pray, I pray that, that you've taken this seriously, that you're not sitting there thinking, I don't have that problem, so I don't have to do that. I don't have a problem with the news, so it's okay for me to watch it for four or five or six or 12 hours a day. It's not changing me. But these times we're in are very frustrating. They make me angry. They fill me with, with doubt and suspicion and fear. That's not the Holy Spirit. 
Cowboy shows fill me with a desire to be somewhere else. That's not the Holy Spirit either. So we have to be careful not to just write this off as some, some little project that they've come up with now to guide our year. It's called sanctification, brothers and sisters. It's called the process of being made holy, the process of being conformed to the image of God. It doesn't happen all at once. Some people think that. It doesn't happen all at once. You know, I, I hear people say, oh, we've been given a new heart. Well, that's true. Scripture says we've been given a new heart, doesn't it? But we should know the minute we read that Scripture that it's a process because there are things in our hearts that are not godly. We can deny that. Oh, I've got new flesh. Meanwhile, the world looks like it doesn't look any different to me. You know, we're supposed to be set apart. We're not supposed to engage in everything that the world engages in, but we're supposed to be in it. We're supposed to be witnesses to Jesus Christ, witnesses to the gospel. That's why God leaves us here. So, for me, the question is, can I fast my TV show? And, and it's not easy. I know, I know it's not easy. Whatever it is that consumes your time, whatever that takes up the majority of your time, can you give some of that up to be closer to God? You know, I'm not going to get kicked out of heaven. God's not going to go, oh, 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 John, you spent too much time watching that TV show. I'm sorry you can't come in. We're going to find out today that there's only one question that ever needs to be answered. The question is, what happens in between now and that time when we stand before him? So I've got a question for you. Are you crucified with Christ? Oh, I hear this all the time. We've been crucified with Christ. Have we? Do, do we even understand what it means to be crucified with Christ? This isn't some kind of license to do what we want to do. It, it's not the okay that no matter what you do, God still loves you. Have we been crucified with Christ? We're going to take a look at that today. We're going to take a look at crucifixion. Now, Mark read a passage for us this morning. I'm going to repeat it. You're going to hear it again before we're done. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, a lot of people will quote that to you to tell you that don't worry, you're forgiven, you can do whatever you want to do. But that's not what Galatians is about. Galatians is written to a church that has been deceived. And Paul's there to remind them that they've been crucified with Christ. So what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? And the sermon today is crucified. You know, we've been going through, we've been going through Luke, and, you know, we slowed down the last couple chapters. Because uh, I, want, I want to look at this closely. The last time we were together, we said, do you have expectations of God? And, and if you have expectations of God, what are those expectations? What do you think Christ expected from the Father? How did he live? Did he insist on his rights? Did he complain about his situation? Did he 
Did he moan and groan over everything he's gone through? Did he lash out at those who oppose him? Was he angry at being treated unfairly, unjustly? And did he disobey all the people around him because he felt like he was right? How did Jesus deal with this situation? Now, we're going to see how all of that plays out in this passage. Ultimately, what does Christ do about his situation? So we're going to take a look today at four major events that happened at the cross. We're going to see the cry in verse 26 through 31. We're going to see the criminals in 32 through 38. We will see the conversion in 39 through 43. And we will see a commendation in uh, 44 through 49. So let's take a look at, at, at our first event, the cry. Uh, now, you, you have, in, in order to understand what's happening here, you have to understand what, what has happened just prior to that. And we talked a little bit about it, but let me get a little graphic for you. Because Jesus has been declared innocent and, and punished. And, and the punishment is way beyond anything you've ever seen depicting the scourging of Christ. Even if, if you watched The Passion, which is pretty graphic. I mean, it's pretty hard to watch. But it doesn't even really compare to what happened to Jesus Christ when they gave him those lashes. So the depictions of the tools used for the lashes aren't even accurate. Because this was, this was a handle that had thongs on it that were about three feet long. Think about that about three feet long. They had little bits of bone and glass. Uh, those who have been with us for a while have heard some of this before. And when, when they hit you with the lash, it, it wasn't designed to just scrape across your back. It was designed to come across the front and be wrapped around and scraped over. Twenty-nine of them. By the time the lashing was done, there was no skin left on Jesus' back. And most of the skin around his chest and his torso was gone as well. I don't know if you've ever had a piece of skin scraped off, a little piece, but it burns. It hurts. It's incredibly painful as the air touches it. Have you ever had a pain that the air causes to make worse? That's what Jesus was going through. So that's what happened just before we hear. And as they led him away, in verse 26, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't carrying the whole cross. That wasn't, that wasn't a big thing. It, it, uh, that's humanly impossible. It's too big. They're too heavy. He carried the cross member. Uh, a shortage of wood. Wood was precious back then. So what they had was they would have poles at the crucifixion site and they would put the cross member on the convicted and they would carry that. This thing weighed somewhere around 90 pounds. And Jesus has to put it on his back. The back that I just described you. Now, it's no surprise that this is almost humanly impossible. He's got to walk about three-quarters of a mile with this on his back. So they employ this guy, Simon of Cyrene. And who is he? We, we don't know much about him. Some people think that maybe his sons became bishops in the church. Uh, 
in the next generation. But we, we don't know anything about Simon. We need to think about the fact that we don't know anything about him because all we know about Simon is that he followed Jesus. We don't know if he saved. He probably wasn't. We don't know. But all we know about this guy is that he followed Jesus down the Via Della Rosa. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about a man that we know nothing about other than he followed Jesus. What are they going to say about us? What will they say about us in, in 20 years or 50 years? We'll even be talking about us 2,000 years from now because of what we did or because we followed Jesus. Verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Wait a minute. Where did these people come from? I mean, we thought, uh, you know, we read the Scriptures, if we're not reading them carefully, we think that the multitude is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Well, you know what? That was in the middle of the night. And now, now we have Jerusalem filled with a million and a half people for the Passover, and the multitude is crying and lamenting. They're weeping for him. And so Jesus has the support of the people. The people who shot and crucified him weren't, okay, but, but, you know, we'll talk about that in just a second. But he's got all these people that are feeling sorry for him. What does Jesus do? How does he respond to a multitude of people weeping and mourning over him? And by now, it's pretty clear that the trial was some kind of sham assembled by people who supported the people that wanted to convict Jesus. And now, now the real people, the population, is mourning over him. And these people are not part of the trial. This is, this is the culmination of the conspiracy theories of all conspiracy theories. They're out to get them. They were. There was a conspiracy against Christ. And how does he react? He's been treated unjustly. He has been declared innocent. He's a godly man. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. And he has the sympathy in the hearts of those who follow him. How does he react? He's silent. He doesn't say anything. They go, okay, people, don't let this happen. Okay, everybody, we got to do something. Okay, we got to take action. Somebody's got to do something. He's silent. And the only person undeserving of the punishment that he received in the entire history of all mankind is silent. Wow. Meanwhile, the crowd around him weeps and mourns. And he's not even crucified yet, but he is so disfigured. He's in so much pain, and his body is unrecognizable at this point that they mourn him. They mourn him. Here's the reaction. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, there's a lot of women in the crowd. Think about that. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He's not looking for sympathy. 
He's still, still giving the people that are gathered around him an opportunity to repent. That's what he's been doing with the Pharisees all this time, giving them an opportunity to look at what they're doing and respond to it and repent. He's telling these people about the wrath to come. Verse 29, and he tells them why. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. This is a direct quotation out of Hosea chapter 10. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the eagles cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? What is that? Green wood, dry wood? I've got a smoker at home and I've got to build a little fire if I want to cook any meat on it. And the one thing I had to learn was that green wood doesn't burn. It's too hard to start a fire with green wood. It's a lot harder, a lot easier to start a fire with dry wood. And what Jesus is saying is, I'll give you the Kavakas paraphrase here. If they're doing this sort of thing, if they're doing this to me, what you see right now, in a time of relative peace with the Romans... What do you think they're going to do when the peace goes away? Because, see, that's going to happen in 70 A.D. The Jews are going to rebel against the Romans, and the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to devastate Jerusalem, destroy the temple, move everything off the Temple Mount, and kill, some people think, over 600,000 people in less than a week. But there's even more than that going here. Because Jesus is really saying, you know, if this is what happens to me now when my teaching is new, when my teaching is fresh, while I'm here, think about what's going to happen when the teaching ages and begins to spread. And watch what they do to me. Because if you're going to be a follower, they're going to end up doing the same thing to you. It's part of Jesus' teaching. Where you see a couple of people crucified today the Romans are going to crucify thousands because there's a penalty for rebellion. Now by then, by AD 70, this is really amazing. I mean, if you go to the book of Acts, you find out that by AD 70, most of the Christians have left Jerusalem. Uh, and not, not because they needed to get out, but because, because Stephen gets up and delivers a sermon and they stone Stephen. And a persecution begins. And the, the Christians move from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. So the crowd cries for the suffering of Jesus. Jesus cries for those who will suffer without him. It's an amazing moment. So there's two criminals, our second event. Let's take a look at them. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were they, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now the Romans, Romans wanted to put on a show here. They wanted to make an example of what was happening. They, they, so they, they've got these two criminals. And... Have you ever wondered why there were two? I mean, I, I've read this passage for years. I went, huh, two criminals. And, and why two? 
I mean, we know everything God does is, it has a purpose. Every word of the Bible is inspired. But I want you to think about this for a second. There's Jesus and two others. And the Romans are putting on a show, but Jesus is doing his own type of show here. This is a, a moment in the history of mankind is about to, the, the pivotal moment for all of us. The, the moment that stands between uh, eternal damnation and eternal joy with God. And Jesus is standing in between two men. Jesus, the representative, the second Adam, stands between two representatives for mankind. And what we see on that hill is we've got two types of people. One guy who rejects him and the other guy who accepts him. And it doesn't matter what their politics are. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. It doesn't matter their nationality. It doesn't matter their attitude about a vaccine or a mask or who won the presidency. All that matters is that Jesus is in between them and the only thing sending one into joy and the other into condemnation is what they think about the man in the middle. Now, I love Alistair Begg's teaching on this because the guy on the right doesn't know anything about Jesus other than he's innocent. He shows up at heaven. What are you doing here? I don't know. The guy told me to come. He told me I would be with him. <laughs> well, wait a minute. What's your doctrine? I don't know what that word means. <laughs> well, what, what, wait a minute. Did you get saved by free will or by God's like? I, I don't know. All I know is the last thing he said is today I would be with him. It's an incredible, simple faith. All the other stuff's important, but it doesn't have eternal, eternal consequences. Jesus standing in between two people. There are only two types of people. I've said it before. Those who know Jesus and those who need Jesus. So what, what, what is expected here at, at the crucifixion, and this was a Jewish tradition, was that the, the, the convicted would confess their sins. And so everybody's waiting to hear Jesus confess his sins. He's been convicted, hanging on a cross. And he does something totally opposite. He confesses the sins of those who are trying to kill him. Look what he does. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, it's an incredible moment. These people who have tortured me. These people who have flayed the skin from my body and have now nailed me to this piece of wood. Forgive them. Oh my. Oh my. The capacity to forgive lies in Christ. And the things He forgives are Things that we would imagine are unforgivable. I can't forgive that type of pain. I can't forgive what that person did for me. Look what Jesus does. And even more so, look, look at their response. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Let's gamble over his clothes. He's not going to use them. And the people, the multitude they're talking about, stood by 
watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's a Christ of God, his chosen one. It's not a challenge, this is a mockery. They don't expect him to do anything. The soldiers also mocked him, verse 36, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This is all said with a tongue in the cheek and a giggle. Can't save himself now. The irony of the situation is he wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save them. And he was in the process of doing it. They just didn't realize it. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate put that up there because he couldn't figure out what the Jews were doing. Literally, this man says he's the king. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? The cry of the crowd is for Jesus' pain. And Jesus' cry is for those who have caused him pain. It's a lifestyle lesson. So then our third event is this conversion, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So, so the guy on the left is looking for an opportunity to get out of this situation. He look, looks to God, get me out of this situation. He's really not concerned about Jesus. He's asking for proof. Save us, prove you're, you're who they say you are. Before I believe in you, do something for me, and then I'll believe. He's really not expecting Jesus to do anything. But we've, we've heard that challenge before. If God's really up there, let him do a miracle for me. I mean, that's not what the Pharisees have been saying all along. You know, they hear people are being raised from the dead, people are being healed, demons are being cast out, teaching is incredible. And he shows up in front of the Pharisees and goes, okay, well, do something else. He's no different than everyone else. But notice, notice how his accusations are similar to those who are crucifying him. If you're really God, do something. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, the guy on the right, do not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Look what he just did. The convicted is supposed to confess their sins. He just said, I'm a sinner. He did what was expected of him. And he does something eternally important as well. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. And all he really says is, we're guilty. And this man's innocent. He recognizes his own sinful behavior. And he recognizes in Jesus Christ, holiness. He sees that he's a holy man. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The first thing we need to see here is that he recognizes Jesus as a king. Only a king would have a kingdom. And he is only asking for one thing. He's asking that if he can be part of that kingdom. There's a great irony here. People that know that Jesus raised people from the dead, yet they refuse to believe. And this man turns to Jesus as he's dying and believes. He believes that Jesus has a future kingdom and he wants to be in it. And what the words that he utters, the Jews would be familiar with. This is a typical inscription on Jewish grave markers. 
for God to remember the deceased and count them among the, the, the righteous. So they would know exactly what he's saying. Everyone who heard the second thief would understand that he was saying the same thing. Let me be counted among the righteous. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now Mark talked about this a little bit earlier. There's a little bit of a debate over where paradise is, whatever, you know, the seven heavens and all sorts of really academic stuff. And it's all interesting, but it totally misses the point. Because what Jesus says is because of your confession of your sin and your belief in me, you will be with me. And that's the point. doesn't matter where paradise is. It matters that he's with Jesus. John Piper wrote a book several years ago called God is the Gospel. And in the beginning of it, he asked a question. He says, if Jesus weren't in heaven, would you want to be there? And there's a couple of dots here, which means you're supposed to pause and go, I don't know, would I? I mean, isn't the goal to get into heaven? Isn't that why we share the gospel? To get people in heaven? And then later on, he goes on to explain that your answer will reveal whether or not you feel that salvation is about you or God. Because it doesn't matter anything about heaven if Jesus isn't there because the goal is to be one with him. The goal is to be united with Christ. It's not about getting us into a big mansion and a better car and all the other stuff that we imagine goes with heaven. That's what's happening right here in this moment. So we have these two representatives. And the entire history of mankind is boiled down to one singular moment with the Savior of all mankind sitting in between the only two types of people that exist. And the only one that will be with him is the one that is transformed, the one that is converted, the one who believes in him. So our fourth event is this commendation, and this is important as well. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There's darkness in the middle of the day. While the sunlight failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, there's an incredible amount of things going on here. You know, we can talk about how tall the curtain was, 30 feet tall, and it was about three feet wide. So tearing the, the curtain in two would not be an easy task. You'd have to have several oxen and several men and all sorts of tools and everything. But even then, you wouldn't be able to tear it from the top because it's too far up. You'd have to tear it from the bottom. So there's a miracle here. The veil that stands between God and man is rent. And now man can be in the presence of God without penalty in Christ. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. How many times do we have to hear that? 
Verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, and all these his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. And we're going to hold right there for a second. Because the important thing that we need to understand about this is that Jesus commends his spirit into the hands of the Father. He's not a victim. He's been tortured. Physiologically, he can't possibly survive this. But it's not, listen carefully, it's not the crucifixion that kills Jesus. His life hasn't been snatched from him. He hasn't died from his wounds. He has surrendered completely to the Father to the point of giving up his life for the sake of those who believe in him. Jesus willingly pays the debt for our sin because Scripture says there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood and the penalty for sin is death. So Jesus hasn't been victimized. He's been hurt. He's been wounded. He's suffering incredible pain, more than we will ever experience, but he hasn't been killed. He willingly, obediently pays the debt for our sins. Gives up his life to the Father. Well, I don't know. Some of these commandments are hard to do. I don't know. It's a law. I don't want to be a legalist, so I don't want to have to obey. Jesus obeys unto death. Those are four events on the cross. We've got this cry, and the cry is, the real cry here is for those that are about to undergo Judgment. We've got these criminals. There are only two types of people. Those who have Jesus, those who need Jesus. We have this conversion, and we find out that you can be with Jesus. You can have Jesus if you confess your sins and believe in who he is. I mean, that's the beginning of it, but that's all you really need to go into eternity is believe who Jesus is, who he says he is. And then we have this commendation. Jesus yields up his life, sheds his blood. He endures unspeakable pain and torture so that those who believe in him can be with him. So, now, are you crucified with Christ? Now that that we have an understanding of what crucifixion is, am I crucified with Christ? Are you? I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I have by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Have you surrendered all of your rights? Every one of them. Are you ready to endure injustice for the sake of the gospel? 
Can you forgive those who have hurt you, those who have mocked you, those who have been been cruel beyond any human endurance? Can you do that while you suffer even more? Even more. And see, here's the heart of the fast, brothers and sisters. Even more. Can you sacrifice a little to say that, yes, Jesus, I understand what you went through. I understand the pain. I can't experience it myself, but I see it and I understand it. And I am willing to sacrifice this little bit because you sacrificed everything for me. Are we crucified with Christ? Can we give just a little in thanks for everything He's done for us? Let's pray. Lord, it is beyond imagination what You've done. Beyond all sense of reason. Beyond all understanding. That you would come down from your throne and walk among us and share with us the truth of who you are and ultimately die for those who believe that truth. Lord, we believe it help our unbelief. Because as much as we believe it, we find it hard to walk in. Lord, as much as we believe it, we find it hard to appropriate these truths into our walk. We know, Lord, You're not calling us to be passive. Oh, but Lord, Your call is to be active. But what we struggle with is what to be active for. Oh, Lord, we need Your wisdom. We need Your discernment. We receive the sacrifice made for us. Now, Lord, help us to walk in it. Help us to do the same thing to our desires, Father, to our plans, Father, to our vision, to our rights, Father, and our privileges. Help us to crucify them. That we might do the same thing Your Son did and bring You glory in how we walk through this life even as we anticipate the moment we stand before You in glory. Help us, Father. Help us to be Your representatives here. Lord, we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming out today. I know we've got ice out there. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back again next week.